For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. State Senator Stephanie Bice returns Congress, Congressional District 5 to the Republicans. Bice defeated incumbent Congr- Congresswoman Kendra Horn on Tuesday by more than four percentage points. Neva, were you surprised by these results? Not really. And I think when we look at the results, um, the story's told pretty simply in the fact that even though uh, Congresswoman Horn at the time had less than 1% uh, in Oklahoma County, she won Oklahoma County by 2,000 votes approximately. When you look at Pot- Pottawatomie County and Seminole County, you have uh, Stephanie Bice winning Pot- Pottawatomie County by 11,500 votes and Seminole County by 3,300 votes. So that 15,000 vote uh, difference there uh, was just astronomical. And I think the other thing we have to look at just in the overall uh, context of the election is the fact that we had a 20 percent higher turnout in the district than in 2018. So those numbers and when you look at the uh, fact that uh, uh, that the president uh, easily carried, uh, you know, certainly in the in the the numbers in, in Pottawatomie and Seminole counties, uh, it just uh, was a perfect setup for a very strong win for Stephanie Bice. And I think this was the race that, uh, as we've talked about before, a congressional race that was the number one race in the in the country in terms of just focus and spending. I think uh, some of the numbers I've seen, the total number potentially spent in this one congressional race could exceed about 20, 20 to $25 million with all of the all of the different groups involved, as well as the two campaigns uh, that uh, that we saw all of this, all of this money being spent. But at the end of it, let's take back uh, the seat that they uh, narrowly lost uh, two years ago. Uh, Ryan. You know, I just to pick up real quick on an interesting point about turnout that the Neva said, you know, there was there was increased turnout, but of the of all of our congressional districts, you know, since the, since the last census and the last uh, reapportionment, the fifth congressional district is, is easily the most populous of the congressional districts. Yet it had one of the if not the it was either the fourth or uh, I think it may have been the lowest turnout of all of the other congressional districts that uh, that had elections that night. And we're talking about a congressional district where, you know, Neva says there's 20 million in spending, number one of the uh, number one target nationally. So there there is some interesting, you know, turnout issues there if if we're if we're looking at the amount of money and attention spent on it. Um, I think, you know, truth be told, it was an incredibly devastating night for Democrats across the state of Oklahoma. Uh, and Kinderhorn was was no exception. I think that, you know, she tried to run a campaign where she stepped out of a partisan mold uh, and, and, you know, and she did everything that she could to do that. I mean, she um, you know, ran a campaign that was centered a lot around her not being in lockstep with her party in Washington, DC. And um, yeah, I think that if there are any illusions that that can overcome the kind of partisan nature of political campaigns these days, you know, that, that, that should, you know, her campaign should have dispelled that at this point because she did as good of a job as you could do of trying to run as a centrist, moderate Democrat. And she just simply wasn't able to convince enough partisans to join her. And that's really what I think decided this race was, uh, you know, much like people root for OU or OSU and they, they can't tell you exactly why. I mean, they just do. It's not because they think that, oh, it's not because they're a fan of the wishbone offense or something like that. It's just you're, you're a partisan. 
And that's how these races are determined these days. And that was the sweep that we saw in the fifth district. And uh, I mean, even Stephanie Bice uh, admitted as much uh, in, in her campaign. She ran a campaign largely against Nancy Pelosi. And in her acceptance speech, you know, the first thing that she said, or one of the first things that she said was that she was proud to return the district uh, back to the Republican control and to make it red again, make all of Oklahoma red again. This was a referendum on Trump, uh, which, you know, Trump has become the Republican Party. And in the fifth district in Oklahoma, I think it was just too much for Kendra to overcome. Both state questions before voters this year failed to get enough approval to pass. Let's start with state question 805 to end sentence enhancements for people of nonviolent crimes. Ryan, what's next for organizers of this initiative petition? Well, what's next is is more work. Um, the the criminal justice system in the state of Oklahoma is is uh, deeply broken and, and doesn't deliver justice. It uh, and it and instead you know, destroys lives uh, and families and communities every single day. Uh, I think a lot of the folks in the criminal justice reform world uh, were incredibly disappointed at the results of, of 805. But I think we should just you know, step back for a second and recognize that 805 was a very bold initiative. Uh, it, it would have been a very big step. And so I want to you know, say thanks to the courage of you know, my former colleagues at the ACIU, Nicole McAfee, and my good friend, former Speaker Chris Steele, for having the courage to, to run a campaign and have this you know, very difficult conversation with Oklahoma voters. And I do think that it sets up uh, an opportunity this next coming legislative session to talk about what sentence enhancements mean. Uh, and I think more importantly, to continue a larger conversation about the power of prosecutors in the criminal justice system. Neva. Well, I think that what we did see is the public really paying attention to this issue and, and forming their opinion based upon uh, the arguments that they heard from both sides. Uh, many, many felt that this was an overreach, that this was something that when you start talking about placing something in the Constitution, that immediately uh, raises concerns. And I think the opponents were very effective in repeating um, the, um, the, the points about that it the state question would classify nonviolent crimes, uh, uh, that domestic violence, uh, animal cruelty, uh, some of the home burglary charges would technically be classified as nonviolent. That seemed to resonate with voters very clearly. And I think you had some high profile folks with uh, certainly with uh, former Governor Frank Keating as the spokesman for the anti-group or the Oklahomans United Against 805 and others that came out. And they were they had a very uh, uh, a much less well-funded and organized campaign. Certainly uh, were not out there for the length of time that the that the pro side was, they were out there for a year, spent $8 million uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, churn up support for themselves. And at the end of it, uh, we saw this basically 60-40 um, uh, against this particular state question uh, when the night was over. State question 814 also failed to get enough votes to pass. It would have changed the amount of money going into the Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust from 75% to 25% with the excess money going to the legislature to fund the expansion of Medicaid and other Medicaid expansions. Neva, what do you think of state question 814's failure? Well, you know, this was interesting because there was not much of a campaign on either side. Uh, that there was uh, the effort uh, by a group of healthcare associations that formed a coalition late to oppose the measure. But this again was something I think where voters were were getting their own information, were doing their own research in some cases, and making their decision again a 
a, an issue of amending Oklahoma's constitution. Uh, and that was, I think, a, a big a big point to, uh, in the takeaway. And I think the other thing is when you have large turnout in general elections, particularly in presidential years, you have things on the ballot such as state questions. You have voters that get to the ballot, uh, uh, the polling booth, and they've not paid any attention. And when in doubt, voters vote no. So I think you have that as part of the uh, uh, as part of the potential impact on the numbers, which uh, even uh, even looking at all of this, I think the takeaway for legislators may be that the idea that somehow there will be the possibility of uh, doing something to um, change the formula or do something with the T-set uh, of, at any point in the future, I think will be very, very difficult to take place. Ryan. Yeah, I think a lot. I think Neva's right. Uh, a lot of voters walked into that election uh, booth on election day or through their absentee ballots and and saw eight fourteen and and really didn't know what to make of it. And um, I think that there is there is something to be said for if you if you if you're reading something as a voter and you don't understand it, um, that uh, there's there's probably an inclination to say we're not going to do this, uh, especially whenever it deals with uh, giving the legislature more authority. Uh, because, you know, the, you know, folks may may love the current composition of the legislature, but the idea of giving the legislature more authority, uh, I think, is one of those few things that, you know, continues to cut across uh, party lines. You know, we we have seen, I think, you know, nationally and, and at the state level, an increased polar or, or not maybe an increase, but an increasing polarization of, of American politics and Oklahoma politics. And um, there, there are a few things that can fall outside of those those buckets of partisanship. Uh, one of them has traditionally been criminal justice reform. I hope that in spite of 805's uh, loss, that, you know, that that continues on through the legislative session and perhaps with new initiatives in the future. But I think with 814 as well, when there's, when there's a lack of clarity and the choice is you know, giving elected officials more control or less control, you're probably going to opt to give them less control. Now, in the past initiative petitions that have passed have been, or recently at least, have been during the primaries. Is is there maybe a, a maybe we should start putting these initiative petitions during the primaries when more informed voters tend to go out to the polls? Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've been thinking that myself, both from a from a couple of perspectives. One for Medicaid expansion. What would a Medi- what would Medicaid expand What would Medicaid expansion have looked like uh, on Tuesday's ballot? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, whenever that is a very complicated issue, and the voters of Oklahoma, I think, benefited from a very uh, robust conversation and, and uh, discussion about what that meant going into the ballot box this last summer. Uh, I thought a lot about what uh, adult use marijuana and criminal justice reform in that regard would have looked like if 807 had been able to make the ballot. Um, and you know, I, I do think that there is an advantage whenever you're talking about big policy changes um, to be able to have those in the context of an election where uh, where voters are able to have a conversation because that's kind of what the initiative process is. That's the beauty of the initiative process is it allows uh, Oklahoma voters to sit in the position of legislators and policymakers. And if they're going to do that, it seems to make sense that they're able to do it in a, in a more isolated context than in a loud conversation about, you know, Trump versus Biden and Horn versus Bice and everything right. else. We had a lot more elections on Tuesday. I just wanted to get your thoughts on any of them you were watching. Ryan, let's start with you. Well, you know, I, I'm going to start with with a with a bright spot for for Democrats, uh, and that's Maury Turner taking HD 88. Maury is a, a good friend of mine, a former colleague at the the ACLU of Oklahoma, 
and they are the first Muslim non-binary member of the Oklahoma legislature. And uh, I can't be more excited for them. And I, I think that the perspective that they'll bring to the to the state capitol, uh, their commitment to uh, you know, lifting community voices up, you know, that's that's something that uh, is going to be really exciting to watch over the next couple of years. You know, there were uh, you know another another race, Joanna Dossett picking up that uh, state senate seat up in Tulsa. Neva and I talked about that being a very competitive race. Uh, but then there were some other races. You know, uh, Ch uh, Chelsea Branham in particular, uh, you know, state representative. Uh, in, in Oklahoma City, Kelly Albright, uh, and in the Oklahoma County area as well, both losing races. Those two tremendous legislators, um, and uh, and you know, I think that their voices are going to be missed at the Capitol for for everybody uh, because they they brought a lot to to their legislative service. Neva, well, I think when you look at the numbers now for the state house, the fact that uh, Republicans will have eighty three, Democrats eighteen. Uh, the gains that were made even Tuesday evening, um, we we find ourselves in an interesting, you know, an, in, an interesting place going into this upcoming session with this type of supermajority uh, in the House. And on the Senate side, I think uh, it, it was it was status quo. I mean, 39 Republicans, nine Democrats at the end of the night, because we had, as uh, as Ryan said, we had the uh, uh, Senate 35 seat uh, uh, where uh, Joanna Dossett picked it up. Uh, mm -hmm. That was an open seat that had been a Stanislavski seat uh, uh, against uh, Cheryl Baber. That was a hard-fought, uh, a very hard-fought, high-spending campaign. Um, and I think it was interesting, as we've talked about before, when you start looking at some of these races that go down to the wire, you also have to look at registration, particularly in presidential years where you have this uptick in turnout, because uh, in that particular Senate seat, I mean, it's still a Republican seat. It's 22,000 roughly Republicans, and I think uh, maybe pushing uh, 18,000 plus Democrats. And then you've got this, the, the remainder being the independents, which in my estimation are becoming more and more the um, the real factor in some of these close races uh, that both parties are having to really pay attention to, particularly in high turnout uh, general elections. So, and then I think uh, Republicans uh, were um, pleased to pick up the um, uh, the seat in Senate District 37. That was uh, Senator Allison Eichley Freeman. That that seat uh, was won in a special election. And so Republicans obviously were concentrating on trying to pick that seat back up, which they were successful in doing. And it's an overwhelming Republican seat. You have 26,000 Republican registration advantage over about 13,000 Democrats. So um, it was it was there it was there to be won, and I think uh, I think we saw uh, we saw a very competitive race all the way to the end. But Republicans able to, to be successful in picking that seat back up. Well, and I, I want to note your Representative Trish Ranson, uh, who overcame a uh, Republican in the Stillwater area. Uh, Representative Ranson is is now the only uh, Democrat outside of the two major metropolitan areas. Um, you know, Matt Meredith you know, lost in the, the Tahlequah area. And you know, that's he was he was kind of the, the last of the rural Democrats. And, you know, I think that that is, um, you know, we're seeing a realignment there. But whenever we talk about um, the ability of uh, Democratic candidates to win these elections um, and it becomes a referendum that is you know, largely beyond 
you know, a platform or a policy or an ideology, but, but more around an identification with a particular party. Um, I think, you know, Democrats have got to figure out how to overcome that. I think both in the short term of trying to figure out how to, you know, create their own, their own, uh, increase the number of own partisans, but in the long term, thinking about uh, institutional reforms that, you know, maybe can attack some of the, the increasing polarization that we're, that we're seeing. Oklahoma surpassed 2016's presidential election in the number of voters by nearly 100,000 more people going to the polls. Officials say nearly 1.6 million voters is the most seen in 20 years and apparently now a record number of people voting in the presidential race. Ryan, what did you think of the turnout? Well, I mean, I think first of all, you know, let's talk about absentee uh, and in-person absentee turnout. Those were huge, incredible numbers. Um, and, you know, I think part of that was uh, the result of, of the pandemic. I think part of it was there had been so much conversation about absentee voting uh, in the run up to the election and you know, more folks got accustomed to it. You know, we saw a surge in that in the Medicaid expansion uh, initiative petition. So more people were getting used to this idea of, of mail-in absentee voting. And so those numbers are incredible. I hope that we continue to see that. I think that, um, you know, that is uh, the state should, you know, look at ways that we can feel comfortable about mail, uh, mail in uh, ballots, which we should in Oklahoma, uh, you know, and, and ways to make that even easier while still keeping it secure, which, you know, there are a ton of models around the nation where there are also tons of models around the nation where, uh, you know, you know, maybe we shouldn't look at, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of good ways that we could, we could do that. I think that it is incredibly disappointing to see on election day itself, uh, a ton of really long lines. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of reapportionment. It's also a matter of, are we investing the kind of resources that we need to make it so that people can you know, show up and cast their vote and not have to commit their entire day to do that? I mean, that's, that's a real privilege to be able to do that. And then finally, I'll, I'll point out you know, a good friend of mine, Nick Singer, who uh, runs a website called OK Progress Now. You can find him over on Twitter under that, that same name. You know, he's, he's been making an argument that the historic turnout conversation maybe misses the point in that we've also seen population increase. And so if you if you begin to look at increased turnout uh, in respect of uh, increased population, you know, there, there may be some increase there, but the idea that we had this surge uh, and we have you know, you know, larger participation numbers than we've ever had, you know, maybe is missing the point and that there are still a lot of Oklahomans that are out there just not participating in the political process. And we have to ask the question of why is that? Neva? Well, we, but let's take into account that this year we had 69% of registered voters in Oklahoma go to the polls or, or cast their ballots. So uh, a tremendous, uh, tremendous gain, a big positive. I mean, we talk oftentimes about the fact that, uh, that there's low voter interest and we have low voter participation, but 69% is a great number. It's not as good as we would like to see, obviously, but it's moving in the right direction. So it's not just about population growth. It's about the fact that people People understand that uh, this is that casting their vote, making their vote count for uh, for who they would like to see represent them at every level of government is so very, very important. And I think I think that when we talked about uh, 
just looking at the overall voting, I think we have to give a shout out in Oklahoma to the Oklahoma Election Board, uh, uh, Election Board Secretary Paul Zurich and his team and statewide in 77 counties. I mean, we have more counties in Oklahoma than they do in Pennsylvania and some of these other large states or Arizona uh, where they they have the same issues uh, in every state conducting elections. And so I think what we have in Oklahoma is something we can be very proud of. We have... Um, you know, we have an election process that works very well. I think that uh, seeing a record set and absent mail-in absentee ballots, uh, in-person early absent, uh, you know, early voters, uh, which they call in-person absentee early votes, I guess, technically. But and then the heavy turnout on Election Day, all of that's a win-win-win for the process, for democracy and um, and and that the effort was seamless and worked very well. I think people are not surprised in presidential years that they're going to go to the polls, particularly in areas where they have they have very concentrated large numbers of uh, you know voters uh, in in that particular precinct or precincts that they may have to stand in line for a while. So that's not a surprise to them. Uh, it's not everywhere and. Certainly, as we come up on redistricting, some of that will begin to take care of itself because some of these districts are largely, you know, are not uh, numerically or out of whack, some of them compared to others. So as those adjustments are made, I think that becomes also less and less of an issue. But bottom line is, I think we have to give the voter a lot of credit. Sometimes, you know, in politics, uh, there seems to be uh, sometimes this pervasive kind of undercurrent of the voters not too smart and we can kind of fool them or, or we don't really need to make our case to them. I think what we saw in this election across the board, top of the ticket all the way down, is you had to make your case if you were on the ballot. Voters made their decisions. And uh, all in all, I think when you when you look at it, um, even for uh, even for Oklahoma Democrats, who I think held out hope that Oklahoma County would be the one the one place they might pick up a county and they might hold off this uh, this streak, which is now five straight presidential elections in Oklahoma, where uh, Republicans have uh, Republicans have won, uh, did not uh, did not occur. But it was very close. I mean, uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, came in with. Um, uh, I, I think Donald Trump came in with uh, 3,300 plus uh, votes um, uh, ahead of Joe Biden. So it came down to it came down to the wire and every vote, uh, you know, uh, making that as close as it was in the most populous county in Oklahoma. So uh, didn't didn't happen for the Democrats. It's 77 county sweep once again straight five years for that to occur. And I think that speaks again to the voters. It's not just about party. It's about voters making a decision on their ballot who they wanted uh, who they wanted to choose in those particular races. And the question is for the, both of you, how do you keep these numbers up when Donald Trump's not on the ticket? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that my, my friend David Glover would, would remind us all is that it's not too early to request your absentee ballot for the next election right now. You know, go to the election board and get your request and sign up for those absentee ballots, get them in the mail. Um, and and I, I, you know, I think that, you know, for for Democrats, uh, you've, you've really got to start to think about, um, you know, what are these, what are the issues that, that are, that allow you to talk to voters that aren't just completely in the camp of, of Donald Trump. And I think that Donald Trump and the Republican party 
are largely synonymous at this point. And uh, you know, I think that you, if you look at the issues around the nation, where you saw turnout uh, up and and Democrats doing doing really well or helping Democrats, you know, things like you know minimum wage uh, uh, ballot questions, drug policy ballot questions, you know, they did really well. Not just in Oregon, where they did something you know really incredible by decriminalizing small amounts of all drugs, which you know just just incredible progress there. But you're looking at uh, marijuana legalization in South Dakota. Uh, you know, I think that um, you know Democrats really need to, I think, uh, lean into the fact that until something really big changes, uh, we've got we've got a partisan system, and you've got to find issues that bring folks over to your camp. And and if you can't do that, uh, you're going to continue to you know give these elections not give them up, but you're going to continue to lose these elections to Republican candidates. But I think the other the other point on on this is that Republicans and the platform and the party, when we look at these numbers and we look at voter turnout, it's not just a one time one shot. Donald Trump was on the was on the top of the ticket. It's the fact that that the that the philosophy, the beliefs, the uh, the entire kind of view uh, that Republicans uh, look at candidates and compared to Democrats who, you know, I think what we would arguably say for Oklahoma Democrats, when you look at national leadership for for their party, uh, clearly Oklahoma Democrats and Oklahomans across the board have uh, summarily rejected uh, them as being viable candidates. I think we saw that in the U.S. Senate race uh, on Tuesday night, uh, where it was uh, it was an overwhelming re-election of Jim Inhofe, uh, and it was not just the fact that it was Republicans going out and voting. It was the fact that Oklahomans were going out in 69 percent record number and making that determination. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.